Good morning. Well, as he said, uh, my name is Brandon, if we haven't met, uh, one of the pastors here at Sojourn Heights. We are in a series in the Gospel of John. John looks at the life, ministry, teachings of Jesus. Uh, and John writes his letter with a purpose, with a clear intent that he tells us what it is. It's to persuade, it's to compel people to believe that Jesus is what he calls the Christ, the Son of God. And so he begins his letter laying out his case that this is who he is, that he is the divine Christ, the divine Son of God. He calls him the Word made flesh, God in human form. And then we hit chapter 2, and in chapter 2, where we are today, begins a series of signs, a series of signs in the book of John uh, showing, trying to prove that what he said about Jesus is true. Now, a sign is this. A sign is an event that points to a reality beyond itself. So a sign looks at a certain event, a particular event, and sees the event for what it is, but recognizes that event points to a greater reality well beyond itself. And today we get the first of his signs, and so what we're going to do is from now until about the end of February, look through a few of the signs that John lays out, and then we will come back to the last sign on Easter Sunday. So here's our question for today. Our question that we're going to try to answer today is this. If this is the first formal sign, the first sign that Jesus does, that John records, why turning water into wine at a wedding? I mean, it could have been a myriad of other signs. There is no end to the signs that John could have given, John could have recorded to try to show that Jesus is the divine Son of God. Why this one? Why this sign as the first sign of who Jesus is, why water into wine at a wedding? The answer to that question is going to do two things. One, um, or it's going to challenge some fundamental assumptions first. Some fundamental assumptions that the people John was writing to had. Assumptions like religion or following God is nothing more than a set of rules, a set of do's and don'ts, rights and wrongs. And so this was uh, the group who had not just the scriptures, but they had their additional book with hundreds of here's how you live these things. And it's going to come in and challenge that to follow God, to stay in God's good God's, let me try that one again, to stay in God's good graces, you got to do X, Y, and Z. The other assumption is this, um, that to be a Christian means this. No, no more celebration, no more party, no more fun. It's going to press into the reality or the, uh, the, the assumption that many of us as modern kind of Western Christians have that I am my own autonomous individual self and I get to define what happiness looks like for me. I get to be the one with final say in what it means to pursue happiness in my own life. John is going to come in and press into that one. He's going to press in and say, listen, I know you think you're pursuing happiness and you think that letting somebody else tell you how to find greater happiness in life means no more happiness and no more celebration for you. John is going to challenge and say, oh, you have no idea what you're talking about. No idea what you're talking about. But here's the second thing that the answer to our question is going to do. The answer to the question, why water into wine at a wedding, is going to do, it's going to take us straight to the heart of what Jesus came to offer. It is going to take us straight into the heart of what Jesus came to offer. Straight to defining or redefining what it is that Jesus offers for the people that John was writing to. And so what we're going to do is we're going to dive into the scene, we're going to sit inside, live inside this scene for this morning, and let the scene that John is unfolding 
and its deeper reality, see how it might define or redefine what it is that Jesus comes to offer for some of us. And so let's get to it. John 2, verse 1. And let me, let me give this dis- disclaimer before we get started. I, John 2, this passage we're looking at, we could do a seven-hour seminar on a Saturday through the themes of these 11 verses. You don't want that. We're going to pick one, and we're going to look at one, but there is no end to the depth and richness of the passage that we are looking at. Just want to get that out there. All right, verse 1. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said it to him, they have no wine. Okay, so let's stop and let's talk about weddings in this culture, in this context, in this day. Weddings in this day, they were week-long festivals. I mean, they were massive events. You would invite the entire community. The more people came, the greater the honor for your family. It was a seven-day, week-long blast party, right? Um, I, I, I've done, I don't know how many weddings, and in almost every wedding that I've ever done, uh, the, the couple getting married said something like this to me. Hey, 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 pastor, just keep it short, man. Like, just, we don't need a whole lot from you today, man, so just keep it tight, right? Not, not in this day. That's not how they did weddings in this day. In this day, it was a seven-day, week-long party. It was a festival. It was a celebration. And to understand why this is the setting, why this seven-day festival celebration party wedding is the setting for the first sign, we need to broaden our horizon a little bit and talk about weddings, marriage, in the Bible up to this point, or weddings, marriage, in the Bible, uh, in the Old Testament. So here's how the Bible begins. It begins with a marriage. Adam and Eve, husband and wife, they are naked and they are not ashamed. It means there is, there is complete and total spiritual, emotional, physical unity between Adam and Eve. But then Genesis 3, one chapter later, very beginning of the Bible, sin enters the world. Sin enters the world. And there is spiritual, emotional, physical disunity as shame came with the sin. But the division of Genesis 3 would be far and wide. It would not stop with Adam and Eve. It would make it to every man, every woman, every child as there became division between man and God, man and one another, man and home, and own self, man or woman and their own self. And then, uh, this is not, though, where the story would end. That God would form a nation, a nation called Israel. Israel who would be God's redeemed people, who would live as God's redeemed people among the nations and for the nations. And this is where we find the theme of wedding and marriage picking up in the Scriptures that there are a number of places, a number of places where God in the Old Testament called Himself the bridegroom of His people. Let me give you one example. Isaiah 62, 4 through 5. You shall no more be termed forsaken, and your land shall no more be termed desolate. But you shall be called, my delight is in her, and your land married. For the Lord delights in you, and your land shall be married. For as a young man marries a young woman, so shall your sons marry you, And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. The the God of the Old Testament, the God that a lot of people think of as the angry, I'm out to get you God, just said, 
As a bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. That's one of many examples we could give about God being the bridegroom of his people. But then there's also the book of Hosea. The book of Hosea where when God wants to show the depth of his love for his people, he gives this man named Hosea and tells him to go and chase down your unfaithful wife. If you want to see this picture of God's unending relentless love for his people. He gives a story about a man who is called to go and pursue his unfaithful wife. And then there's the book Song of Solomon, which it's far too erotic for me to be able to just talk about freely. But it's this intimacy of a husband and a wife. So here's the point, that marriage is a redemptive theme woven throughout the Old Testament. It's a theme woven throughout the Old Testament that clearly has a greater picture to itself than simply what meets the eye. Now, woven throughout the Old Testament is the redemptive love of God for his people looks like the love of a husband for a wife. That the story of God's redeeming love throughout the Old Testament making its way up to our scene in John 2 is a story of the love of one spouse for another, which gives a picture, a picture of the kind of relationship God wants to have with his people. The picture of the kind of relationship God has always wanted to have with his people, intimate, loving, connected, and how this would have challenged both of the groups that John is writing to. That John is writing to, in his day, a set of Jews who thought, no, no, listen, here's what God is. God is demanding. There's the scriptures, and then there's the additional, and I've got to do, and I've got to do, and I've got to do, and if I don't do one or two, I'm in deep trouble. And then the Greeks who thought, no, listen, if there's a God, he is absolutely distant. God in the material world, God does not come to the material world. And John is smashing through both of these and saying, no, listen, the the, the God of the Bible is a God of intimacy and love, the kind of love the spouse has for another. This is the picture of what God wants you to see. I want you to see when you think of him, the way he thinks of you, it's intimate, relational, it's not distant, it's not robotic, and it's not demanding. It's the picture of the love of one spouse for another. So that's why a wedding. But why a wedding without wine? Why a wedding for the first sign? Why a wedding that runs out of wine? Remembering signs, events that point beyond themselves. Well, there's a cultural layer to this. There's clearly a cultural context that's happening here, and this would have been, in their day, beyond shameful. This would have been well beyond shameful. This was, there's really not a modern um, parallel one-to-one for what's happening here. I'll try to give one. Uh, But if you were to imagine yourself uh, being invited to a wedding, the invitation said, hey, come, we're going to have the wedding, and then afterwards there's going to be a feast. We're going to have just mountains of food and wine everywhere. Come, we're going to have a blast. And then you show up for the wedding, and everybody goes to the reception, and then you get to the reception, and you look around, and you see a small little table over there with a few sandwiches on it and no wine anywhere to be found. And then the bridegroom um, the host has to get up and say, hey, listen, thank you guys for coming. I, I should have mentioned that we, we actually don't have food for y'all. Have a blast. Have a good time. You can pick up dinner on your way out. There's a good burger down the street. You'll be, just, you'll be just fine. Now, that certainly would have been embarrassing for the host. But now imagine that the bride's family could have sued the groom's family over this event. This is the context that this is happening in well beyond shameful. But there's a deeper reality to what's happening here, a deeper significance to what's happening here. 
that wine throughout the Old Testament was a sign of blessing and favor. Having an abundance of wine symbolized having God's favor and His blessing, but it was also it was also woven into the story of redemption that was to come. So Israel in the Old Testament, they expected this day where God would make everything right, where He would make everything right, everything that was un, that, that was uh, everything that heartache, all of the pain, all that was wrong in the world would be made right. Shalom would be ushered back in, complete and total, flourishing. And in that day, there would be no shortage of wine. Joel 3, in that day, the mountains shall drip sweet wine. Amos 9, the mountains shall drip sweet wine, and all the hills shall flow with it. Isaiah 25, on this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine, well-refined something I do not drink today. So here's the point John is making. What's about to happen is not simply about an embarrassing moment for the host of a wedding. It's about the one who was to come to bring this feast of well-aged wine being here. It's about the one who would bring this day where the mountains would flow with sweet wine. The one who's bringing that day is here. And so how does Jesus respond. Well, let's pick it back up in verse 3. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does that have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. So Mary, the mother of Jesus, looks at him and says, hey, listen, they're out of wine. They're out of wine. And Jesus responds with, so, my hour has not yet come. Hour in John is a technical term for the cross, or the crucifixion of Jesus. And so the scene looks like this. Mary looking at her son and saying, hey, Jesus, they're, they're out of wine. And Jesus saying, so, it's not my time to die yet. Would have been perplexing and confusing, certainly can be for us. So let's keep reading. It's going to come into focus what he means. His mother, undeterred, I love that. There's no convo, there's no debate. It's just his mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now, now there were six stone jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. So Jesus chooses these jars, these jars intentionally, and these were huge, massive, they, they would have held between 120 and 180 gallons of water, and he says, fill them to the brim. Take these jars, fill them up to the brim. These jars that were used for what's called the Jewish rites of purification. The, the word translated rites of purification, it's one word. Uh, the, the definition of that word, you know what it is? It's this, cleansing from inward pollution. Cleansing from inward pollution. When he chooses jars and says, hey, go fill those jars up, he chooses jars that they used for cleansing from inward pollution pollution. That when they wanted to come in and to worship God, they would ceremonially wash themselves to be clean before coming into the presence of God. Now, they certainly would have used this water to clean their hands, etc., before eating, but it highlights the ritual of purification that they were used for. The point being, Jesus saying, hey, listen, you, you who understand, here's what I'm saying to you. You, you. you are in need of purification. You are in need of the cleansing from the inward pollution, not just dirt off of your hands, but what's in your heart. He's making a statement about the inward heart of man right here, I think. 
You guys ever seen a picture or been to L.A. and seen uh, the smog as like you, you try to look through the smog and see downtown, but you can't really see downtown? Like you know it's there, but the smog is too, no? Okay, I've, it, you should Google it. Um, that, I think that's the picture of what's going on here inside the human heart. The inward pollution that you just can't see through. It's not visible necessarily until you try to see something in the distance. And he's saying, you need cleansing from that. And the people John is writing to would have said, are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? Are you out of your mind telling me I, I need cleansing from inward pollution? I'm, I'm here, I'm the one who does the X, Y, and Z that I'm supposed to do. What do you mean I need cleansing from inward pollution? And Jesus says, you, you do, you do. And let me tell you how I am here to do it. Verse 8. And he said to them, now draw some out. Remember, he filled it up with water to the brim, 180 gallons to the brim, remember that. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it, and when the master of the feast tasted it, tasted the water, now become wine. So here, here's how I'm going to do it. Here, here's how I'm going to bring about the cleansing that you need through water become wine, wine that you can taste, that you can experience, that you can put in your mouth and feel and enjoy and delight in. I'm going to cleanse you through water become wine. He takes water used for spiritual cleansing, 180 gallons of it, and turns into 120 to 180 gallons of wine. And it would not be long before they would understand why. Because it would not be long before John 13 was here. John 13 that said, Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet to wipe them with a towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, What I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. Kind of a typical Peter line right there. You'll never wash my feet. And Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Peter to Jesus, Jesus, you're not going to wash my feet. Jesus saying, listen, you, you, you don't understand right now what's going on. I know that you don't understand right now what's going on, but afterward you will. Afterward you will. You will understand what I'm doing. After what? After the hour of my cross, the hour of my crucifixion comes, you will understand. Because you see, just before the cross, Jesus was having a meal with his disciples where he took up bread and he took up cup and he held his cup up and he said, this cup, this is my wine. That's not true. My blood poured out for you. This is the cup of my blood. It is poured out for you. I'm going to cleanse you through my blood. This is what you will understand. It's my blood that cleanses you, my blood that makes you clean. There is nothing that you can do aside from being washed by my blood to become clean. How in the world could that possibly be? Here's how. Because wine in the Old Testament didn't only symbolize blessing and favor, it also symbolized judgment and wrath. For example, in Jeremiah 25, thus the Lord, the God of Israel, said to me, Take from my hand this cup of the wine of wrath and make all the nations to whom I send you drink it. You see, here's what would happen when the hour came. When the hour came, Jesus would climb on a cross and he would drink from the cup of wrath so that you could drink from the cup of grace. 
that is what they would understand. They would understand that when the hour came, he would drink from the cup of wrath for the nation so that you and I can drink from the cup of grace. And you want to know why 180 gallons filled to the brim to be a picture of the overflowing mountains of grace that has been poured out on you? The unending over far more water or wine than they could have possibly needed as a picture of the quantity of wrath that he would drink for the quantity of grace that would get poured out on you. That is why 180 gallons filled to the brim. But now if we go back to John 2, we get to see what this grace is like, and we get an answer to our question, what does this sign tell us about what Jesus came to bring? Verse 9, beginning again. When the master of the feast tasted the water now become wine, it did not know where it came from. Though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. See, here, here's how weddings normally worked in their day. They were these seven-day parties, as we said, and you would take the good wine, and you would serve it first, and then when the people were drunk, the watered-down wine. Where it says, when they drank freely, that the, the word there is just when they were drunk. Every other time in the New Testament it's used, it's used of being drunk, right? So here's the way it worked. Good wine. No watered-down wine. Up front, get everybody good and drunk so they can't taste anymore. And then you water the wine down so you can spread it out over the full week. And Jesus is showing up to a group of people who have already drank the good wine. They have drank the watered-down wine, and he is bringing the best wine in last. The best wine in last. Jesus point being is the bridegroom who brings the good wine, and he saves the best wine for last. Why, why wine in this story? Why would that matter so much? Because the grace that Jesus brings is not simply you under, something you understand. It's not simply something to be interpreted. It's to be tasted and experienced and enjoyed and delighted in. That's why this sensory experiential language is all over the Bible that's why in Psalm 34, 8, which we quote every week, taste and see that the Lord is good. 1 Peter 2, 3, if indeed you have tasted, tasted that the Lord is good. Jonathan Edwards, a um, fairly well-known pastor from hundreds of years ago, he has this really well-known illustration where he says, you, you want to know what God's grace is like? It, it's like honey. It's, it's one thing for have someone, to have someone eat honey, and then try to describe it to you, to write a little paper about it, to dissect it. It's a whole nother thing to taste it yourself. It's a whole nother thing to taste it, to put honey on your lips and to know what that sweetness tastes like. This is what grace is like. And so what I, what I want to ask you right now is this. Like, is grace something that you can internalize and process and write a paragraph on, or, or is it something that you taste? Is it something you've experienced? And, and what, I, what I don't want to be understood by that is I'm, here's what I'm not asking. I'm not asking, like, hey, have you ever come and believed in Jesus and then received his grace and now experienced that grace? That's not what I mean by that question. What I mean by that question is this. Is grace something that you intellectualize or something you operate from? Because those are not the same thing. 
right? So like, I can understand grace. I can write you a paper on grace, but if I don't know how to live grace, extend it to myself and to others, then I'm not operating from grace. I'm not tasting it. It's not sweet to me. So is it something that you taste? Is it something sweet to you? Is it something that you operate from? Is it something that you so enjoy that you can't help but extend? What is it? Is it intellectual? Is it a process? Is it something that just X plus Y equals, yes, I have God's grace? Or is it something that has so fundamentally changed you that it shapes how you live? It shapes your relationships with people around you. It shapes how you see God, how you believe God sees you. But here's the other reason, best wine until last. First, so you sense it, experience it, enjoy it. No, this is what grace is like. It's like good wine. But it's also saved to last because the Bible doesn't just begin with a marriage. It ends with a wedding. It's called the wedding supper of the Lamb. And you know what the, you know what the church is called in the wedding supper of the Lamb? It's called the bride. The bride clothed, right, and pure. The word pure in Revelation 19, clean. Clean. Those who have been cleansed by the blood of the Lamb invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb, which so radically changes the way that we see what Jesus came to offer, that he didn't come to bring just a new set of do's and don'ts, a new set of ethical teachings, a good way to raise your children, a good set of kind of moral instructions. Of course, of course, Jesus has opinions about the way we raise our children. Of course, Jesus came to show and to teach how to live in the world. Of course, he cares about morality and ethics, but he came to bring a wedding feast. He came to bring a wedding feast, a banquet to enjoy and delight in. He came to bring a wedding feast, a wedding feast that does not run out of wine, a wedding feast that everyone is invited to. And listen, I don't care about your wine budget today. The wine that you drink today will be nothing compared to the wine that you drink then. Nothing. Nothing. It will be a wedding feast to end all wedding feasts. And so those who would say, I still kind of default to, no, Christianity, Jesus, following him, it's about just kind of a moral code, doing rights and wrongs. He's saying, no, listen, listen, open the scriptures and see how he, how he fulfills all of the feasts throughout and how he came to bring this wedding feast to be enjoyed and delighted in. And so those who'd say, man, you know, I, 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 I'm kind of my own man. I, I'm my own woman. I, I'm the one who gets to define what's right and wrong in my own kind of pursuit of happiness for me. I think John might say to you, you're not taking following Jesus seriously enough because you think, you think that your way to pursue happiness is better than his way. Let me tell you what that's like. That's like choosing the lame party of today over the eternal feast that is yet to come. Are you kidding me? You're choosing the lame party that you're throwing over the feast that is to come. So the question becomes this. Like, is that how you see? Is that how you see Jesus? Is that how you see the Christian life? A wedding feast. One who came to bring a wedding feast. Do you see simply as a religious teacher or some kind of philosophical guru? Or do you see the one who came to bring the wedding feast? Because listen, there, there, were, there were plenty. There are plenty of people who um, were, were at this party, at this wedding, when Jesus turned these 180 gallons of water into wine, who would have said, oh man, this is, <laughs> this is a great wedding. This is a great wedding. 
And then there were the disciples who, it says, believed in him, who said, oh, this is good wine, and you're the one. You're the one. Is that how you see him? Is he just the one who changes water into wine? Or is he the one who came to bring grace that you can experience, enjoy, delight in, and operate from? How do you see him? Has it shaped you? Has it changed the way you see the Christian life? Jesus came to bring an eternal wedding feast. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this text, the chance to uh, open it, to sit under it, to enjoy it. Help us to see, help us to see the trajectory of it, that Jesus came to bring an eternal, an eternal wedding feast, a wedding feast to blow every other wedding feast out of the water. A wedding feast that is the substance, not the shadow. Give us eyes to see. Help us to see. That will take your grace, and so we're asking for it. And we ask in Christ's name. Amen.